have a little bit different of a format, and we are going to have two parts because it's a rather lengthy passage. So we want to give our undivided attention to, to God's Word, and we hope that it serves you to kind of break things up like this so you can help you focus on hearing what God has to say to us today. So let's hear God's holy, inspired Word to us today through 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Mohan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes." For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. Now Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers? And give it to men who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David. While 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nebal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, for he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said... Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David. And more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male to all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and the folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal." And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God." And the, li- and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. 
And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed your prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand which she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice, and I've granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galam. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for accounts like this that that are meant to teach us something of you and of your servants and how to relate to your anointed one. Father, I pray that you would bless your word today, God, that you would give us all grace to hear and respond to you. And God, we, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and to fill us, Lord, to enable us to hear, to, to be our divine counselor, to speak to us, Lord, to open up our eyes and our, and our ears to hear, Lord, and our hearts to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, have you ever met a couple that you thought was kind of mismatched? Um, maybe you've been in the airport, or maybe you're, you walked through the grocery store, and maybe, maybe it was how they, how they looked, or how they dressed, or maybe it was their wildly different personalities, or, or maybe you're a mismatched couple with your spouse, and maybe you aren't quite sure how you got together, but it just seems like, wait a minute, how did this happen? You know, maybe you see couples where, you know, she's got big hair, he's got a buzz cut, maybe she lives life out loud, and maybe he is an extreme introvert. Or maybe one of them seems super smart and the other one you're not so sure of. Um, we, we've, whether we like to admit it or not, we've all kind of made those observations about mismatched couples. And we've all seen people we think, how in the world does that work out together? I'd like to be in their house to see, like, how does that work? How do they relate to each other? How in the world do they meet? Like, did they meet in high school and not really know who each other were? Was this an arranged marriage? What happened here? Um, but, you know, often God uses the diversity of where we come from, different backgrounds and the like, to, to draw attention to, to his ability to bring people together, to glorify him, to, to, to overcome all barriers and differences. I think we've all had those times where we've seen these, these differences in people, but we've been polite and we don't really say anything, or hopefully you've been polite, you don't say much. And, or maybe you just mentioned something to your spouse and you're like, take a look at that couple, oh my gosh. In our text today, I think we're kind of meant to respond that way. We're kind, of, we're kind of meant to see this very drastically different couple. And it's meant to serve as a contrast. At the very beginning of the passage, actually, the author is intentionally drawing our view, our gaze, to this, this contrast of this couple. They are very different. They are wildly different. And we're meant to actually to look at one favorably and look at one, the other negatively. And at the very outset, I think 
I think what the author is trying to do here, I think ultimately that the author is God, what he's trying to do here is to show that, that how we respond to God's anointed one, it makes all the difference, because it made all the difference in this case, right? With, with Abigail, she was very different than Nabal. Nabal is very different than Abigail. He is described as mean, as ugly, as cruel, as harsh. He was evil. His name actually means fool. And Abigail means her father rejoices, and she's seen as this picture of inner and outer beauty and wisdom and discretion and discernment. They are a drastically different couple. And, and we're meant to see this contrast right at the outset. And they couldn't be more different. And the way their differences are played out is really in how they respond to God and his, through his anointed one. And, and that's really the main idea we're meant to get from the text today is how we respond to God and to his anointed or through his anointed one. It makes all the difference. And it made all the difference for both Abigail and Nabal. Well, first the text opens up with this really brief mention. And you think it would have be of more consequence after all the book of Samuel is named after Samuel. And yet he gets half of a verse in this chapter when he dies. But that's because Samuel's role has been carried out. His, his place in history has already been set. And now God transitions to do and complete his work through David. God was continuing his redemptive plans through David. Just like God continues his plans, one person dies and another one comes to replace them. God is always at work carrying out his redemptive plans. And so the focus of things is not as much on on Samuel or David. It's really on God who's at work in and through his people. And that's why there's, there's not much of a a place played here for Samuel, even though it must have been a major blow to David. Samuel had been the prophet to anoint David. Now he was dead. We don't know whether he had to go to his funeral or not, but we know that once Samuel died, Sam, David seemed to be a little bit nervous about the death of Samuel because Samuel was the one who could attest to who David was. And so David, we see, he goes even further away. He was in the Negev, in the desert. He was by the Dead Sea. Well, he goes down about 30 or 40 miles further south into the wilderness of Paran. That's kind of the setting we have here. The setting is that life is becoming even more, I guess, unsteady for David. He goes down into the desert with his 600 men, and he is on the outskirts of this town of Carmel and Maon. And David used to be a shepherd, and obviously there were lots of shepherds in the area, and he would have been around all these shepherds and seen all these men and seen all these thousands of sheep that Nabal owned. And, and then he, he heard out somehow from Nabal's men that it was, it was shearing time. Now David knew as a shepherd that when shearing time came, it was kind of like a cross between our Thanksgiving and a summer barbecue. It was a time when you, when you feasted, when you celebrated life, when you invited your family and your friends together and you rewarded people who had helped you with, with the, the sheep and raising them and protecting them. And so David knew that. And it was a time of huge celebration of festivities and it would have been a time to reward people who served. And, and like back in David's day, it, it draws attention to the fact that Nabal was rich. That's because in David's time, there, there weren't central banks like we have now. There wasn't somewhere you go put your deposit. But if you were wealthy, you kept your wealth in agriculture and, and in sheep. And so it says Nabal was very wealthy. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was a very wealthy man, it says. And so David would have seen this and known this. And, and David all along, it tells us, has been protecting the sheep of this man. And, but notice how... Nabal is described. Before we're given his name, we're given his wealth. And so obviously we're meant to see that, that people saw him first and foremost for his wealth. And that's probably how he saw himself. He defined himself by his riches. And then it calls him a Calebite. But then it tells us he was rich and ruthless. He was, he was without wise discernment. In contrast, his wife was, was beautiful on the inside and out. She was wise. She was discerning. Where she was a a wise, he was a fool. Where his behavior was ugly, she was beautiful. So at the outset, we have this, this setting where this, our, our attention is drawn to the sharp contrast. The contrast of how do we, how do God's people, how do people respond to God's anointed one? And so the stage here is set for, for two dramatically different ways that people relate to and respond to God's anointed. And we can learn something from this text as well. This wasn't just about Abigail and the ball. This was about how do people respond to God's anointed and what are the effects of that? 
That question is still valid for us today. How do you and I respond to God's anointed? And what is the result of that? What's the the effects of that? So the first idea we see here in verses 1 through 9 is that the anointed one, he makes this just claim. David, he makes a just claim. He is a shepherd, yes, he's protected another man's sheep, and so he makes a just claim based on that, but he also makes a just claim based on who he is. Not only is it on what he's done, and he's protected and cared for the sheep and for the shepherds, but he makes a just claim of Nabal based on who he is. Did you notice it says he sent his young men, and he tells them to go in his name. And think about what that would have meant at the time. This has probably been several years since David killed Goliath. This is, David has gained a lot of notoriety. He's gained a lot of fame. Everybody would have known that he had married Michal, Saul's daughter. They would have heard the stories of Samuel's anointing of him. And so we read in verse 5, Daniel, he sends ten young men to go and greet Nabal. And he carries a message of peace. And isn't that what the anointed one does for us too? He gives us and sends us a message of peace and expects us to respond to that message of peace. And that message of peace, based on who he is, it makes demands on our lives. Just like David's message of peace, based on who he was, made demands on Nabal's life. He lets Nabal know, he says, I, I give you peace to you and to your household, to all among you. I'm, I'm blessed are you, I give you peace. And then he says, by the way, I've, whether you've known it or not, all the while I've been protecting you I've not taken anything from you, from your shepherds, from your sheep. Must have taken some effort because you remember there were a lot of men with David who were rough men. They were, they were probably used to taking what they wanted before David came along. They were on the outskirts of the law. So David asked Nabal for a favor. Now back in that day, it would have been expected that Nabal would have returned that favor. This isn't like the mafia extorting somebody and says, hey, I'll protect you if you give me some, some money here. No, this is... This is this is very customary. This is, the, this is what was expected in the customs of that day. David had about 600 men. He could have asked for a lot more. He only sent 10 men. He wasn't asking of much from this very wealthy man, even though he was the anointed one. He could have asked Nabal to supply a portion to all of his men. But he was only asking for the young men, these 10 young men, and for themselves, whatever you have on hand... Basically, whatever you have that, to spare, whatever you have from the bounty you've been given, whatever you have on hand, could you, would you please give of your extra towards me and my men who come in my name based on the message of peace that I brought to you and the protection I give to you and who I am is what David is saying. And then interestingly, he refers to himself very humbly as Nabal's servant. He says, your son is how he calls, he refers to himself as Nabal's son. It's figuratively, com- commentators really take that to, to be an offer uh, of entering into kind of a regulated covenant with Nabal. And so David's extending this kind of covenantal offer in this culture built on agricultural it, it, there was norms and rules for providing for generosity for, to travelers and those in need. And it was a, a culture where mutual hospitality would have been given and extended and where there would have been expectations of both protection and provision. There would have been hospitality as the norm, especially if you were wealthy and especially if somebody served you, you would have been expected to show hospitality and kindness to you out to them out of your out of your bonus money, really. You know, today I was just thinking, we, we've kind of gotten away from that, that idea, that culture of generosity, that culture of hospitality, and, and we can often consider things are mine, kind of like the Baal considered things were his. And yet the king makes demands. We can't relate to the idea of somebody being an anointed king or having a right to us or an authority over us or a right to a portion of what we have because of who they are. We can't relate to that. But that's, that was the position that Abal was in. He, he should have known that the king, or at least the king-to-be, he demanded and had a right to a certain portion. and to, to Really, he could have taken all that Nabal had, but so he had a right to demand that Nabal give to him. You know, that's a struggle for us. It's a struggle for us to relate at times that 
that God's anointed one might have a right or a claim to what we have, to what he's given to us. And yet here David, he makes a just claim of Nabal based on who he is and what he did. And so at the same, we can look back and think, okay, wait a minute. For us today, we don't have a King David, but we do have a King Jesus who is the greater anointed one. And he comes and he makes a claim on us of our lives. He offers us an offer of peace. And he says, I've, I provide a way of protection for you and safety. And, but he does make a claim. And he does demand a response from us. Whether we recognize his rule or not, and Nabal did not recognize David's rule, he is still our rightful ruler. Whether or not we respond to him rightly makes all the difference. And so the question that we're confronted with and that the reader back then would have been confronted with is, how do you respond to the Lord's anointed? When, when the Lord's anointed comes and makes a claim on your life and all that you have, and he responds, how, how will you respond to him when he makes a claim? How about you? Have you responded to the Lord's anointed as your rightful king? Are you seeking to respond to him in humble obedience? Out of gratitude of what he's done for you? Well, in the next verses we see the second idea that we can refuse the Lord's anointed, but it makes all the difference if we do. We can refuse the Lord's anointed, but it makes all the difference if we do. Look in verses 10 through 22. We see that Nabal, he knows better he kind of betrays himself. He, he would have been familiar with the customs of the cultures of that day. He throws a big feast. But David's men, they came to Nabal. They acted as faithful messengers of David. It says, I told Nabal everything that David had said, but look in your Bible at how Nabal responds. He responds with insults and mockery. He, he, would, have, he would have known who David was. Nabal was from the same tribe that David was, the tribe of Judah You have to ask, well, well, why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal that Nabal mocked and assaulted David? Well, he knew that David was the anointed king. All the land would have known. He knew this was David the Goliath killer. This was David the mighty man of war. This was David renowned in all of Israel and even well known by all the Philistines. This was David who Samuel anointed. This was David who was pursued by by Saul and Saul said, hey, one day you're going to sit on the throne. I know that. This was David, the Lion of Judah, the son-in-law of the king, the one anointed by Samuel as the replacement king. And Nabal treats him here as if he's a nobody. And he completely disrespects him. He says, who's David? He was mocking him. Who's who's David? Of what account is this guy, David? Who's the son of Jesse? I've never heard of this son of Jesse. Who is this? And he, he mocks and insults David. You know, today, a lot of people do the same thing in response to the Lord's anointed. Who, who is this Jesus, this, this myth? Is this... Is this Jesus even real? Does he even really exist? And yet, God tells us in Romans that, that all of creation reveals that, that he is, that God is, and that we need to respond to him, and, and that in our hearts we can know who our creator is, and yet we deny, we deny God. Well, this was David God's anointed, and yet Nabal is acting like he had no authority over him. And he didn't recognize that David has a right to make demands of him. Instead, he recognized no authority but his own. And isn't that how fools act today? Fools recognize no authority but their own. And we're taught that from a very early age. We're born into that foolishness, aren't we? You know, as, as children, we don't need to be taught to recognize ourselves as an authority. What are we, what's some of the first words we say? Mine, right? And, and we get angry when somebody takes a toy from us as a child. And we, we respond with violence when, when we're offended, when we're insulted. We see no authority but our own naturally, and we need to be trained to see God as our authority. David wrote in, in Psalm 14, one of what a fool really is, and he says, A fool says in his heart, there is no God. Nabal means fool. Maybe David was thinking of Nabal. But you know, fools today are no different, right? And any of us who acts like God is not in the picture, or we behave in a way where we disregard God, and we act like he has no authority over us, or neglects God, 
we're being fools in our hearts and claiming there's no God. When we act like there's no consequences for our behavior, when we say that, you know, God doesn't really care what we do, sometimes you can even use the guise, we've been saved by grace, right? So it's okay, whatever we do is okay because we're covered. A fool says in his heart, there is no God, as if there's no demands placed on our life by the king who has graciously extended peace to us. How about you and I? How, how do we act? Do we act as if there is a God and we have a responsibility to him? Do we foolishly ignore him and act as if he doesn't exist, though? Do we, do we act like that in our hearts and our heads and how we live and how we spend our time and what we spend our money on? And... Here's Nabal. He's a fool because he's acting as if God's choice of David as the anointed king doesn't matter. He's acting as if God doesn't matter because he's acting as if it makes no difference who the Lord's anointed is. Does it make a difference for you? Does it make a difference for me in our lives, who the Lord's anointed is and that he makes a claim on our lives? How do you know that? How do you see that in your life? Well, by disrespecting David, Nabal would have been showing disrespect to God who appointed and chose David. Listen to what Nabal says in verse 10. Look down your Bibles. He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? He wasn't unaware. He was rejecting He was rejecting who David was. He was rejecting any potential covenantal offers that David was making. And he's refusing to acknowledge the anointed one. And he insulted David further. Look down your Bible. He says, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. He says, shall I take my bread? Look at how how many times he uses my. He says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it? To men who come from where I don't know? He pretended not to know David. He acted like David had broken away from Saul, his master, when surely he would have known that Saul was the one who sought his life. And the insult was that he said that David was just like another rebellious slave. He was just like another person who he was a good-for-nothing scoundrel of no significance. And, and he wouldn't even give the basic courtesy of bread and water, which would have been a, a customary requirement in that day, much less meat. And so David's men, they return, and they tell David everything. And you see, Nabal is being very selfish here, right? Um, there's this, this movie called Hook. It's, a, it's an old Robin Williams movie from a few years back. And in the movie, Hook's trying to convince the children that their parents don't love them anymore, And he tries to do that by playing up their selfishness. And he tries to show them, hey, you know why your parents don't love you anymore? Because you're selfish. You say, I want this. You hit my teddy bear. I want my pacifier. I want this. I want that. I want my lolly. I want, I want, I want. I need, I need, I need. Me, 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 me. And he goes, children, can't you see? They tell you bedtime stories to put you to sleep so they can have a moment to themselves. And they almost believe it because they know inherently that they're selfish. And we see here at Nabal, he's the extreme of that. He's the extreme of that selfishness. And it doesn't go well. Look down at your Bible. David's immediate response. It's like a modern day kind of Clint Eastwood response. But holier. He, he, he kind of says, you know, he says, let's, let's ride, man. Lock and load, you know. That's the equivalent. Lock and load. Load strap on your swords, men. That's the first thing he says. And you think, oh my goodness. There's, there's going to be bloodshed. The first thing, when his men come back, he says, strap on your swords, men. Let's ride. You know? and, and so he says, all of his men strap on their swords, and so does he. And you know whose sword he has? He's got Goliath's sword. And so you just meant to see this. He straps on the sword. And so we're like, whoa. They're ready for war. They didn't take insult lightly. And they're ready not only to take what they wanted from Nabal, but to punish him and all of his men. And so he goes out with a strike force of 400 men, and he leaves 200 men back to watch the baggage. And that's what they would do when they went out to war. And so he's going to war against Nabal. Nabal has offended the anointed one, and he's about to pay the wrath of the anointed one. Justice was coming swiftly. Now the narrative shifts here. Look down at verses 14 to 31, and we see this contrast, this this another way of relating and responding to the Lord and his anointed. 
Nabal, he rejects the Lord's anointed, and it, and it's, it doesn't go well. It doesn't bode well for him. He's storing up David's wrath. But then we see in verses 14 to 31 that this, this dramatic contrast of receiving the Lord's anointed and thereby receiving salvation. There's this other critical player in the story. He isn't a main character, but he's important nonetheless. It's the servant of Nabal, and he finds out what Nabal has done, and he overhears it, and he goes and he tells Abigail, oh my goodness, you won't believe what Nabal just did. And he responds rightly, and he goes and he tells of Nabal's response, and he's alarmed, and he goes and, and tells Abigail's concern. He says, here's what happened, and he says, Nabal railed at David's men, even though David and his men, they were very good to us. He attests, he affirms uh, the goodness of the Lord's anointed, and he says, they were good, they protected us the whole time, they were tending the sheep, and, and then we never went, never, nothing went missing. And he says, would you please consider what to do, because harm is about to come. This is not good. And then he says, I can't tell Nabal this because he's such a worthless man. He's such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. I was reading that and I thought, boy, how often am I like that a fool who's not willing to hear correction? A fool can't be corrected because he doesn't listen to correction. How often we're like Nabal and yet... Thank God for people like Abigail. Look down in verses 18 to 20. Abigail was clearly alarmed and she knew she had to make things right for her husband, for all of them, because she knew that harm was coming. She knew how foolish that response was. After all, this was the anointed one. This was David. This was the man who slew Goliath. And so the author writes how she makes haste and she hurries up and tells all the details and provisions she made, far more than, than David's original request of 10 men and him. She brings hundreds of cakes. It's probably enough to feed a few hundred men to have a meal. And so she ro- rides alone. Think about that. She is going out alone. She saddles up these donkeys with goods and she rides out alone about to face an angry David and 400 armed men. Imagine she's riding down the mountain. She must have been second-guessing this. You know, boy, is this, is this really smart? This might cost me my life. And as she saw David's force, she had to have seen them before she got to him, and she had to thought, okay, wait a minute, I, I, need, to, I need to go. I need to respond. I need to receive the Lord's anointing. I need to appeal to, to him for mercy. And she goes boldly. Talk about bravery. She took food that was highly prized at the time, tells you she took cakes of figs and raisins, and that would have been important to them in that day because they kept really well. They would have been important to people who were in the wilderness. And so she takes 200 cakes of, of figs and hundreds of cakes of raisins, and those things stored well, but they were also tasted good. They were sweets, which would have been rarity. And then the author, author gives us kind of more insight. She likely took whatever food they had for the festival. She left right away. And then the author gives us insight into David's plans as well. It tells us that David said, man, before the, before the sun comes up, I'm going to make sure every one of their men is dead. That was his disposition when Abigail meets him. He was full of wrath. And then he makes an oath in the name of God. Now, David here is actually acting sinfully. He's not acting like the perfect anointed one who resisted the temptation to take vengeance for himself. We aren't given commentary by the author at this point, but from David's word a little later on, we know that David was not right, but right then David thought he was right in his actions, and if he was perfect, as Jesus is, he would have been justified. But David is not God, he's not the Son of God, and he was carrying out punishment, defense of his name. Sometimes we get, we get offended like that, and we want to vindicate our own name. So Nabal, he might not have realized the gravity of his sin against the warrior David, but Abigail did, and so it shows us what she did. She prostrates herself and says she falls at his feet. She bows down on her face before David. She intercedes on behalf of Nabal here, and she asks the guilt of her husband be on her instead. She says, would, would, would his sin be on me? Would you consider me as if I was the one who offended you? 
And she humbly responds to the Lord's anointed. And she receives him and she recognizes his authority over her and she bows down to his authority and she, she places herself at David's feet and she appeals for his mercy and for his grace and for his forgiveness. You know, she had everything to lose here, didn't she? She had everything to lose and yet she risks it all. Imagine if you were in her, her place. She had everything to lose and she risks it all knowing that that Unless she gives up everything, unless she throws herself at David's feet for mercy, she will be lost. And this is her only hope to make an appeal to the Lord's anointed for mercy and grace and forgiveness. And isn't that a picture of us? Aren't we meant to respond to Jesus in that way? Knowing that if we do not receive his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace then we justly, in Jesus' case, will receive his wrath because it's deserved by us. Unlike Abigail, she, she was going on behalf of her husband, but we deserve the wrath of the anointed ones. Well, she explains that her husband is worthless and just like his name, Nabal, means fool, so he's foolish. And she wasn't being disrespectful. She wasn't denouncing her husband. She had to be honest. She was taking a tactical approach here, hoping that David would excuse his insolent behavior because he was a fool. And so she makes an appeal on his behalf. And she needs David to know she was a woman of integrity. She's acting truthfully out of loyalty to her husband. But you know, it's interesting. David had, I mean, Nabal had done exactly what the prophet Isaiah had said a fool does. In Isaiah 32, 6, um, the prophet describes a fool. He says, the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. Isn't that what Nabal has done here? Error concerning the Lord's anointed. He says, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Isn't that what Nabal has done? And isn't that too what we do when we, when we see people in need? The fools... Leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, deprive the thirsty of drink. We do other error concerning the Lord and concerning who He is and our behavior. We, we claim that God is not generous and makes no claims in our life. Well, she appeals to David, Abigail does, on the basis of David's worth as her Lord, her superior. And notice here, look down in the verses, she, she calls David her Lord 15 times. She's making a point here. She's appealing to David as her Lord. She is prostrating herself before him. She is saying, I'm your servant over six times. This is a humble, contrite response, isn't it? How do we respond to the Lord's anointed? Do we see that he actually makes a just and right and good claim on our lives? Do we, we prostrate ourselves before him and appeal to his mercy and goodness? And then she says, I didn't see the young men you'd sent, but please think about what you're about to do and realize, David, the Lord has sent me to actually keep you from shedding blood, to keep you from shedding innocent blood and having guilt in your hands. And so she makes an appeal to David. She acts as an intercessor, keeping David from being tempted to give in to taking vengeance on himself. And, and we need people like Abigail to speak into our lives, to bring us correction from God's word and to appeal to us to be aware of what God is doing and be aware God is the one who takes vengeance on himself. And she offers up this costly sacrifice, this present of food as a peace offering to David, and she beseeches him to trust in God to defend him. She makes an appeal that if David spared them, that he would have a clear conscience. And isn't that the appeal that, that we can make to other believers and say, if you trust in God and you keep yourself from sin, you too can keep a clear conscience. Your conscience won't bother you later on. And then we see briefly that David, he's... Well, he's not perfect. He still had to learn how to say no to temptation. We see that he responds to Abigail's appeal. And Abigail is used as a means of, of grace by God. And so we see this, this kind of fourth idea in this passage is that a, a wise response, it, it, it can be God's means of restraint. A wise response can be God's means of restraint. Abigail here gives a wise response. She appeals to who God is. She appeals to God's promises. She appeals to that, that God will take vengeance on behalf of his people. Don't defend yourself when you're offended. Don't stick up for your own name. God will do that. And it's a means of restraining David. And obviously her words sunk in. They took effect. Her use of the principles of God's word, it, it, it clearly brought David conviction. 
It's a model for how we can correct others. Do we correct others using God's word, appealing to them humbly? We see that David sees that God has used Abigail to intervene and to keep him from taking vengeance, and he says, thanks be to God that God has sent you to me to keep, keep me from blood guilt. If you hadn't come at just the right moment, surely there wouldn't have been one man left standing. And then he says, I, I've heard your appeal. And we see that she arrived just in time. And God restrained him from hurting her. And then lastly, we see that the fifth and final point is there's reward for how we respond to God. There are either rewards or consequences for how we respond to God and his anointed. That's what this passage shows us. It shows us the rewards that, that Abigail receives for how she responds to God's anointed. And it shows the consequences that Nabal receives for responding to God's anointed wrongly. First place, we see a reward. David spares Abigail's life. He says, go in peace. I've heard your request. And he goes with the peace of the anointed one. And, and he grants her petition. And then Abigail, which is graphic picture, she returns to Nabal. And he's still holding a feast. When she gets back to him, it's middle of the night probably because David probably went on a nighttime raid. And she gets back to him and says, he is still very drunk. He is drunk. And she thinks, I can't talk to him now. He's wasted. And so she waits until he kind of sleeps it off and says until the liquor is all, all the way out of him, until the alcohol is gone. She waits until he sleeps off his stupor. And she goes back to him and she talks to him. But it's something else interesting here. It says that Nabal is holding a feast when she goes back like the feast of a king. What's that meant to show us? It's meant to show us that he should have entertained the king. Instead, he's treating himself like the king. And he's drunk in his own self-indulgence. He's holding a feast for himself and what he should have given David, the anointed king. And he is, he is lavishing on himself what he should have lavishly given to the Lord's anointed. He was acting like he had nothing to give the Lord and he was getting drunk on the excess. I, I think we can act like that too. Like we have nothing to give the Lord. Like we have nothing to give the people he sends our way or people in need and we treat ourselves like kings and we revel like kings and we get drunk off of our own selfishness. And there's an irony here. David was someone. David, he was, he was deserving of a feast in his honor and yet Nabal, he treated him like a no one and not only denied David a feast for himself, but he gave himself, he gave a feast in his own honor. And he pretended to be king, essentially, here is what the author is showing us. And how often do we do that as well? We give a feast in our own honor, denying the honor that God is due and failing to see that God's given us a lot and he's given us a lot for a reason that we might be good stewards of his resources to use for his purposes, that he makes demands and that we can use what he's given us to honor him. Well, Abigail, she waits to talk to him. He was drunk. But she goes in the morning and then she tells him all that happened and he doesn't respond humbly. He doesn't admit his mistakes. He doesn't say I was wrong. It says that when he heard what his wife had done, it says his heart died within him. Now, that, that could be figurative. It could mean that he actually had a stroke or something here. But I, I think what it's talking about is it's giving us a picture of a man who received a heart of stone for rejecting the Lord's anointed. Instead of a heart of flesh, he rejects the anointed one and he receives a heart of stone. And that's so often the picture in Scripture. He rejects God's anointed one. He receives a heart of stone for his heart of flesh. And it reminds us of the reverse, though, that unlike Nabal, Abigail received the Lord and she was given a heart of flesh. Maybe Nabal became hardened because he was lamenting the loss of his own provisions. We're not sure. But it seems that he at least became hardened to the Lord and to his anointed. And we don't hear anything else from him. But we do see, it says that God, about 10 days later, God vindicated his anointed one. Justice was coming from God 
Because Nabal truly had offended the Lord's anointed, and in doing so, in refusing and rejected David, he rejected God. And God, although he was patient, and he did not immediately strike Nabal dead, it was, his wrath was coming. He carried out his justice. It says, Yahweh, the Lord, struck Nabal, and he died. And then David sees that it was God, and he rejoices. He saw that God was the avenger of his chosen ones. So we kind of learn some things from this passage, don't we? We kind of see some things here. And we see it's not good to stand against God's anointed, that let's acknowledge him for who he is. Let's receive him for who he is. We can see that we're, we're expected to receive the Lord's anointed one, to respond to him and to respond to him with the honor and generosity that he's due. And then we also see that we can trust in God to be our avenger. And then we see the consequences is if we don't respond to God, if we don't respond to Jesus. After Nabal's death, it says David was kind to Abigail and he sent her to take her as his wife. And she doesn't respond begrudgingly. She responds quickly and humbly as if she was the lowest of of the class of his household. She says, I'll be a servant to wash the feet of your servants. I'll gladly come. And she brings five of her maidservants and she immediately goes out. There's no mourning period. Why? Because she's rejoicing that she gets to be with the Lord's anointed. And the passage ends then with this foreboding of Saul's death. And we read that as Saul did the unthinkable, he gives David's wife, Michal, to a kinsman, Palti. And then the chapter that began with Samuel dying, it ends with Saul treating David as if he's dead. And, and there's this foreboding. The foreboding sense that we have about Saul we're left with at the very end. If, if Saul has avenged the insults of Nabal against his anointed one, David, then now when Saul, if God has avenged avenged Nabal, then when Saul insults David by giving his wife to somebody else, Saul's days are surely numbered, aren't they? You know, it seems like insults and abuse carried out against the anointed one of God, they go unpunished, right? All along, Saul has been insulting and abusing and treating David wrongly not acknowledging who he is. But I think the reader here is meant to see that God is surely going to avenge his true anointed one. We're seeing foreboding that Saul's time is coming, although God has withheld his wrath for a period of time. He might seem slow, but he's not slow as some consider him to be. If God avenged David, how much more will God avenge his own son, the Messiah, the anointed one who came to give his life as a ransom? How you and I relate to the anointed one, it makes all the difference. How we relate to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who comes with all the authority of the Creator, and He makes demands on our life. He extends an offer of peace and an offer of covenant to us, and He says, I ask of you in response that you respond to me as your king, that you honor me as your king with, all, with the things that I've given to you. And how we respond to him, it makes all the difference. You see, Abigail, she was wise and discerning, and she appealed to him for peace, and she was duly rewarded by becoming his bride. Nabal, he's selfish, he's mean, and he reaped a hard heart in death. And then we see that God is not slow. He patiently was delivering his justice, and then he's about to deliver justice on Saul, too. Meanwhile, we can realize that we serve a holy God and, and we serve a, a God who, who makes just demands of our life. Now, are we living for Him? Are we honoring Him in all that we do? Are we, are we responding to Him? And then do we take the good news of who He is and do we honor Him and how we live for Him as well? Not to earn his favor, but because he's given us peace, because he's given us favor, because he's given us all that we have, and he's given us abundance and protection and safety, and he's given us new life in him, and he's made a covenant with us and said, I want you to enter into covenant with me and be my children. Do we respond to him by giving honor to his name? Do we respond by showing mercy? and Do we share the good news of him with others? There's a parallel in Scripture to a passage in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, it records Jesus speaking peace to his followers, not to worry about people who can harm our bodies, 
but instead to know that we're far more precious than these sacrificial sparrows and he's, he allows to be harmed for his worship. So in context, Jesus says, if we acknowledge him before men, he'll acknowledge us before the Father. But then he tells us if we deny him before men, he'll deny us before his heavenly Father. And so and Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 10, he says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And then he explains that following him, it might mean that people of our own household might be against us, but part of following him is taking up our cross and following him. And then he reassures us in Matthew 10, 39. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. If you're like Nabal, you're trying to find yourself as your own king, you're going to lose your life. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet receives a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person receives a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There are rewards for how we respond to him. And we will by no means lose the reward that he has for us. We can be assured anything we give up, anything the king asks of us, is but a pittance, is so small a comparison to all that he offers. You know, God took Nabal's life because he sought to save his own life, and yet he rewarded Abigail by making her the wife of a better husband and making her as a princess or a queen. So we close. The question we need to, to ask ourselves is, how do we respond to Jesus? Do we honor his name? Do we give him the honor he's due? Do we, or are we like Nabal? Do we live for ourselves? Do we effectively deny who Jesus is? I think we're meant to see this and say, God, I want to respond to you in humility, Lord, and I want to be your bride. I know it's weird for guys to think of yourself that way, but I want to be one with you. making peace with Jesus, honoring his name and and receiving the peace that he has for us and receiving his mercy and forgiveness and enjoying our relationship with him in freedom. Like Abigail went and enjoyed her relationship with David, we're meant to go in freedom and joy because we no longer have to be enslaved to our old foolish, selfish masters. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, we come to you and... Thank you for passages like this that show us who you are and how we relate to you and, and God, how we should relate to your anointed one. God, I pray that none of us would be a fool, none of us would live like fools, that we'd respond to you and to your just claim, that we'd humble ourselves at your feet and that we would say, God, all we have belongs to you. Do with us as you will. And God, I pray that we receive not only your peace, but I pray that we go out in joy and in freedom knowing, God, that you've redeemed us, that we have your peace that rests upon us. And God, I pray that in response to your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness, God, I pray that that we would be generous, that we would go and and shine your light to others, that we'd tell of your goodness, that we would tell of who you are. And God, thank you that you promised to reward us. Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, keep us seeing the eternal rewards that you promise. In your name we pray, amen.